There was once a married couple that fought a lot. And they weren't very good at their fighting. One of the, uh, the marks of an unhealthy marriage is the inability to handle conflict well. Because conflict will come your way. And this couple wasn't very good at handling conflict. So they got in a fight one night, and both of them were rather stubborn and hard-hearted and proud. And so they ended up giving each other what is commonly called the silent treatment, meaning they were not talking to one another. My mother used to use that with me a lot. So two days into their giving each other the silent treatment, creating a house of hostility and stone-cold silence, the man realized that he needed his wife's help because in order to catch a flight for a business meeting the next day, he needed her to get him up at 5 a.m. And she always was the one to wake him up. So how do you ask your wife for help to get up the next day when you're giving her the silent treatment? Being proud and not wanting to be the first one to break the silence, he wrote her a note, and he put it on her nightstand, and it said, please wake me up at 5 a.m., and he went to bed. The next morning he woke up, only to discover that his wife was up and out of the bed, and he looked at the clock, and it was 9 a.m. He had missed his flight by three hours. He jumped out of bed, was just about to find his wife, and now he was willing to start talking to her, to yell at her, and demand an answer for her failing when he noticed that by his bed, on his nightstand, there was a piece of paper. And it said, it's 5 a.m., wake up. Another victory for the ladies. <laughs> this story shows the importance of communication. Of course, I could have used it in a sermon on marriage. I could have used it in a sermon on the way to shoot yourself in the foot. But I'm going to use it as the importance of communication. There are many ways to communicate, and there are many ways to fail in your communication. Communication involves connecting to give or to receive a message. Prayer is one way that we connect to God. But how does God communicate back with us? Does God ever give us the silent treatment? The scripture in Hebrews that Miss Ruth read, very beautifully I might add, I like the New Living Translation, says that in many ways and in many times past, sundry ways and diverse situation, the King James says something like that, God has communicated. He's done many things over the thousands of years, but finally and fully, He communicated to us by sending Jesus in human flesh. Jesus is the full revelation of God. Jesus says about himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So anything you wonder about how God feels about you, look to what Jesus said and did, and that's how God the Father would say and do if he were there in the flesh as well. 
So continuing, just a couple weeks left after this, the high fashion of the high priest series, where we're looking at the items that the high priest wore as he went into the tabernacle and how they reflect something about God and how Jesus fulfilled something about that, we come to an important part of the priest's fashion statement, a means of communicating back to the priest and therefore with God's people. And he used an interesting thing, which is even two funny words to say, the Urim and the Thummim. You've got to know how to stop saying those. Now in this series, we've looked at different things that the high priest wore as he came before God. And rather than show you uh, more than the slide, if you remember last week, I had a handsome young priest, Evan Corbett, but this week I have another, come on out, brother. This is Peter Konev, playing the high priest. Looked like a pastry chef, too, with that hat. Beautiful. Isn't he handsome? So we started out this series talking about how the priest had to be anointed with oil because the man himself had to be anointed before God to be blessed. And then we talked about how he wore this miter, this hat that said holiness to the Lord on it, or holy to the Lord in Hebrew, as he came before God. This is who we want to be before you, God. We want to be holy to the Lord. He also came wearing bare feet so that nothing of this earth separated him. He had to wash his feet and come before God clean. Of course, Peter's got on some pants today, but that's okay. We're going to ignore the, the uh, Sabbath pants. Call you fancy pants. Then he wore the white robe that the normal priest wore, and then he put on a blue robe over that. And then he wore an ephod, which was this apron thing, which had all these colors of scarlet and purple and blue and white and gold, beautifully woven. And then over that he wore, remember, the curious girdle, the sash, that meant he was ready to do business and then over that, the breastplate. Now remember on the shoulders, it had the two stones that had six names, of the brother, six names of the sons of Jacob and six names of the sons of Jacob up here. But on the breastplate, it had 12 separate stones, each with a separate stone representing one of the sons of Jacob to say that God knows us. He carries our burdens, but He knows us individually and He sees each one of us as if we were the only person alive. But now the interesting part. In the breastplate, which was a folded piece of fabric, it was like a pocket, sort of. He carried two stones. Could you show those to the people? Ladies and gentlemen, this was as close as I could come to a white stone. We're going to pretend that that's fully white. I didn't have any paint. Bonnie didn't have any white nail polish. And I didn't have any white out. So white represented the Urim. And thank you, I appreciate that. And black represented the thummim. And most people think that this was the yes and this was the no. As the priest went before God to determine answers for God to communicate. So the priest stood before God to bring the petitions of the people to God and he took from God directives back to the people. By means of these two stones, the high priest could learn the counsel and the judgments of God on various problems that the nation would face. 
Thank you so much, Peter. Excellent job. Can you give it up for young Peter Koenig? His brother, Max, broke his arm yesterday. So Peter came just to do this. I appreciate that very much. They're not his brother, Max. Nazar, I'm sorry. Nazar broke his arm. Max is the dad. My fault. This was how God chose to speak to Israel in those days. Why he did this, I don't know. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the people like it was on the day of Pentecost. So this was a way that God chose to speak. Remember Hebrews says, in various times and in various ways, God has chosen to spoke to people in the past through the prophets, through the law, through signs, through nature. And he also now has chosen these two stones. So let's read in Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30. We read this last week, but I'm just picking out a couple verses of it. Is it all right to read my Bible in church? Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30. This is in the long chapter of what God is telling Moses that the high priest should wear. And it goes through a very elaborate thing about how to put together the ephod and the breastplate. This is part of what would be inside the breastplate. And it says in verse 29, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece or the breastplate of judgment. That means to determine, judging as in deciding right from wrong, yes and no. On his heart, when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That's so he's saying, look at these stones. These are your people, God. Remember your people. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Then thus Aaron should bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So these stones were supposed to be right up against the priest's heart. That's how God was going to judge the people, yes and no, and make decisions. Was He cared about these people so much, I want you to carry these stones close to your heart. This is the first time these two words are used in the Bible with, with hardly any explanation at all as part of the high priest's high fashion. Now, because there's not a lot of detail about these two stones, we can assume that they might have been used before in other ways or God thought that Moses would knew what he meant to do this, but they were intended to keep in the breastplate like a pocket. But they were very precious now, as I was putting this sermon together, I pulled up, I found some guy did an entire dissertation, his project, like to get his MDiv or his DMIN or something, on what the Urim and the Thummim were. It's like 20 pages long. So in other words, not everybody is 100% sure of exactly what these two things mean. Most people think it's rocks, one black, one white. Some people think it was things that were hanging some people are thought it was other things, uh, and, and the words themselves are kind of unusual. But I'm going to assume, like most people, and I'm going to say it and I'm going to speak it, that it's two rocks, one white and one black, one indicating an affirmative or favorable answer, and the other a negative or unfavorable answer. In Hebrew, the word Urim means lights or enlightenment or to set on fire. 
And thumma means perfection or integrity. Now remember that because it's going to come up later. And when the stones were within the ephod, the Urim and the Thummim became the channels by which God would speak and manifest His opinions and decisions for the Israelites. So the high priest became the conveyor of God's messages to the people. And they could come to God with their questions. God, we don't know what to do here. What should we do? Answer us by the stones. And God would do it. Now the stones are only mentioned in Scripture. Urim is only mentioned seven times. And Thummim is only mentioned five times. So it's not like you hear a lot about these two things. But I mean, who wouldn't like to get directions from God? I mean, imagine if you could have two stones or any way of, of asking God a question and getting an answer. Wouldn't that be great? Haven't you ever had a question or a situation where you wish God would just come right out and tell you what to do? God, for example. God, should I date this guy? Should I marry this girl? Should I take this job? Should I pick up my family and move from one city to another? Should I send my child to this school? God, what should I do about this situation that I'm having with my neighbor? Should I leave my spouse? How do I save my marriage? Should I invest our money into these stocks? Should I keep this person as a friend? Should I attend this church? Should I follow my heart? Should I go ahead with this surgery? Is this the right doctor? What should I do? Should I follow Jesus? Should I give him my heart? These are all legitimate questions that people would want guidance and answers for. Most people want to do the right thing. I mean, I'm a, maybe I'm naive, but I think most people want to do the right thing if they knew. They're not dumb. They're ignorant. And ignorant means you don't know. Like Paul said, Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. He's not saying they're dumb. He's saying they don't know. Ignorant means you don't know. And I think most people would want to know if they could know. So how do we know the future? How can we take a step with confidence when no one knows how the choices and the movements we make are so tied together? Later, you can look back and say, if I hadn't done that, then that wouldn't happen. And if that wouldn't have happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And I'm sure glad I did that. I didn't know it at the time. Or you can look back and say, when I did that, I set this whole thing into a downward spiral. And I wish I could go back and not do that. But you can't undo life. For example, I was uh, pastoring in Kettering, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, at the Kettering Church. Kettering's a a big, beautiful church. There was like five pastors. I was a youth and young adult pastor. There was an academy there from K to 12th grade. You know, we had a big pipe organ, minister, music, choirs, bells, everything. Uh, I was youth and young adult pastor, as I mentioned. Uh, the kids loved it. We got there when they were in second and third grade, and they went there nine years. But as time went on, I decided that I felt like I wanted to be 
a senior pastor. I wanted to preach every week. I was getting to preach about once every two months, and even then I had to fight for it. And I just felt like it was time to move on. So I'm saying, I'd sure like to move on. God, do you think this is the right thing to do? And my family, my wife and my two sons, they don't want to go anywhere. They like it there. So now we're having this conflict, this tension. How do we know what to do? You see, this is a real-life example. So my boys, I finally had been interviewed for the church in Stone Mountain, Georgia, to be the pastor. And my sons are going to be seniors and juniors. Well, no kid that likes to have been at a school for nine years and then be told he's going to move when he's going to be a senior and a junior. Are you with me, church? Because I'm standing here with my hands looking. Why am I doing this? This means 12th grade. They didn't want to move. Miss Vonnie didn't want to move. But I eventually talked her into it, twisted her arm, booted us out the door because I felt, if I'd only had the urine and the thumb, I felt that it was time to move and God was calling us. So we moved. Me with a partial smile, the two boys in the back seat ready to stab me in the back, Vonnie crying. We got to Stone Mountain. Thing was basically, nobody here is from Stone Mountain from 2003, are they? Basically a total disaster for a number of reasons. And we were left going, God, is this what did I do the right thing? Am I telling you the truth, honey? Am I telling the truth? God, did we do the right thing? Should we have stayed in Dayton? Why didn't you give me some sort of Urim and Thummim? I have the same scripture, scripture which says, never shall I leave you or never forsake you. That means we're going. And she's like, no, we're not going. That means we're staying. And so I look at that. Probably the worst three years of my ministry. Now, here's a little side point. Whenever you see a pastor and he's only at a church for like two years and then he moves, that means it was a bad experience. I'm, I'm, that's my experience. Not with me personally, but whenever I see my friends move, I'm like, that must not have worked out. If he wouldn't have been there two years. But while I was there in Atlanta, I went to Emory University and I got my chaplain training. And because we were in Atlanta, and because I went to Emory, and because I got my chaplain training, then I received a call to go to Florida and be a chaplain slash pastor, where we had probably the best years of our ministry. And because those were good years, then I was able to come here. And now here we are having some good years of ministry. At least I'll amen myself on that one. My point is, oh, thank you. My point is, if only we could see the outcome of every single decision we made. I can remember sitting there basically trying to convince her to move. If I could go back, would I stay? I'd like to say I would because I'd love to see my boys graduate from that high school. But there must have been a reason at the time. You know how time changes your perception of your memories. It wasn't that bad. Then you get back there, oh, now I forgot. You know, you kind of remember the good things, or sometimes you just remember the bad things. My point is, I wish we all had a Urim and a Thummim to make decisions in our lives. 
And you can probably look at decisions you've made and times you had questions and you just wish God would answer you in a way that's like, yes, go. Take that job. Move. Ask that woman. Whatever it is. I think about King Saul. When King Saul was in trouble, 1 Samuel chapter 28, King Saul was in trouble and he wanted to hear from God and he was desperately searching for a way to connect to God. Samuel the prophet had died and that's why he felt all by himself. And all Israel mourned for Samuel that it said the Philistines were camped around the Israelites and ready for battle. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and he didn't know what to do. He felt alone. He felt unprotected. His advisors were gone and God seemed distant to him. David, who would end up replacing him, and he were estranged. Samuel was dead. And so like so many of us, when he was searching for guidance, he wished that he would have had an answer given to him. And it says in 1 Samuel 28, verses 6-8, through you know, this story is often used to what, talk about what happens when you die because Saul calls up, or this witch calls up, quote, the ghost of Samuel. And so this story is used often to say, talk about real, what really happens when you die. But as I read it, in this, I never noticed that the Urim is mentioned in there. So it says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, so he's trying all the methods he knows, by dreams, or by the Urim, or by the prophets. So that's one of the two verses where the Urim is mentioned by itself. So he tried to connect to God in all the ways that he knew. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now it actually says medium, but for some reason we always say which. So Saul disguised himself, because he knows he's not supposed to be doing this. Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, because he knows he's not supposed to be doing this. Perhaps for the same reason when it says when Jesus was visited by Nicodemus, it says that Nicodemus came by night. And when they arrested Jesus, when did they arrest him? At night, because at night is when you can hide and you can blend in. So this text in 1 Samuel 28 tells us that the Urim was still being used and not just by the priest anymore. Saul wanted guidance. He tried everything. And when every good thing that he knew failed, he turned to things that are not so good for him. It was because his heart wasn't right with God and he had been rebellious and God was no longer with him. And because he was at the end of his rope to try everything he knew of ways to connect with God, it says by dreams, by prophet, by the Urim, he tried, he then turned to find other ways to connect to God. And so we can look at Saul and we can say that he was dumb or you never would have done such a thing for going to a witch or a medium. But I'm telling you, when people are desperate, they will do desperate things to find answers. 
And people today are uncertain of their future. Not just their future, but the future of our country, the future of the world, and trusting in God when He doesn't seem to answer with Urim and Thummim seems pretty hard. So here's one of the marks of Christian maturity, and it's okay to fail at this and to grow in your faith. <coughs> Excuse me. We have to learn to trust God through silence. We have to learn to trust God through pain. We have to learn to trust God through heartache, through darkness, through loneliness, when the counsel of Scripture doesn't go along with the ways of the world. To be patient when you don't feel like being patient. To be kind to those who aren't worth being kind to. To be loving to those who are unloving. To be humble when it would be real easy to brag. Or as they say now, to humble brag. I don't mean to brag, but look at me. Well, you just bragged. To make a choice and then step out and know that God will bless you no matter the outcome of that choice. Because you're going to make bad choices or poor choices like maybe my move to Stone Mountain, but God is bigger than any dumb, bad choice you can make. If you fall and break something apart, He is in the business of re-gluing things back together. It won't look exactly like it did before, but God is a great repairer. Jesus is the great physician. And it sure would be nice if you could get a simple yes-no from a stone. So the high fashion of the high priest, the tabernacle, the furniture, the service, all of these things were foreshadowing Jesus, meaning they all represent Jesus thousands of years before He came. Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the true high priest. He fulfills the Urim and the Thummim. He was light. He was perfection and truth as those two words were used to be defined. He was the light that comes and lights every man that comes into the world, John 1.9 says. The Urim and Thummim were just a small measure of the Holy Spirit which was given to the high priest but was later given to all people on the day of Pentecost. John 3.34 says, To Christ the Spirit was given without measure. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to you and to I so that we have full access to God. So today we no longer need to depend on the breastplate of a high priest. We don't need to go to a high priest or any priest. Neither do we need to depend upon the Urim and the Thummim for answers. Neither do we need an earthly high priest to go before the presence of God behind the veil that separated us from the very Shekinah glory of God above the mercy seat. Remember that the Gospel of Matthew was written by a Jewish man. Matthew, written to a Jewish audience. And Matthew is the one that tells us that when Christ was crucified, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. So the most holy place and the holy place the veil was torn asunder when Christ died on the cross. 
So Matthew, a Jew, is telling Jews and other people who read, we do not have any separation now where we have to go to a high priest to present our request to God. We don't need a Urim. We don't need a Thummim. We have one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ himself. The veil has been torn away. Access to the glory of God has been granted to every child of God. So you don't need me to come to God. That's not my role. I'll pray for you if you ask me to, but you can, your prayers are heard by God just as much as my prayers. People would say to me, would you pray for me because I know you've got a special connection to God. Like, Lord have mercy if you think that I have something available to me that you don't have to you. I'm a man. I'm a man like you are, unless you're a woman. I am just a person like you are are people gifted to serve God together as a church family. And all access has been granted to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, the word Urim begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And Thummim begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Tau, T-A-U. So that's the Hebrew alphabet. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Where there the first letter was Aleph and the last letter was Omega. So when Jesus says this in Revelation 22, it kind of makes a little bit more sense now. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. In other words, he's saying, I am like the Urim and the Thummim. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am your first answer. I am your last answer. I am your yes. I am your no. I am your go forth. And I am your be still and know that I am God because the veil is torn and we have a high priest and it's all in Jesus and He wants to dwell in your heart through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you'll still make mistakes because when you have the presence of God, it doesn't make you perfect it means you have a relationship with the perfect one who is perfecting you. And that's going to take a whole lifetime of times and troubles and fallings and getting back up again. So you don't fail when you fall. You fail when you refuse to get back up. There's a line from a country gospel song that says, the saints are just the sinners who fall and get back up. It's kind of cool to think about God communicating with people through glowing stones. They also cast lots. Nobody's really sure what casting lots was. Jonah was discovered in his book to be the one who had, uh, who had messed up by they cast lots. They cast lots for uh, Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross. They chose Matthias, the, the apostle, to replace Judas by casting lots. So there's this weird system, it almost seems magical, that was used in the Bible. And the Urim and the Thummim kind of have this magical flavor to them. I don't know why, but that's what it says. So that's kind of cool to think about it. But how much greater is it to know that the living Word of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit? And if the Holy Spirit lives in you, then as you read the Word of God, you have the author of the book directing you to truth. Now the challenge is to submit yourself to the guidance of the Word and to the presence of the Holy Spirit and not say, oh, I don't think it means that. No, I don't have to do that. You submit yourself in obedience to the one who gave himself for you, and that's how your life will be changed. And you'll still fall, and you'll still make mistakes because 
you're human. And you might still do dumb things like move your family to Stone Mountain, Georgia when they're all crying. And I'll pray for you when you do. But see, God is so good that he can take your worst mistake and make something good come out of it. That doesn't mean that God makes bad things happen. That God doesn't mean that God won't give you any more than you can bear, as people say. That means that no matter what happens, he's there. Whether you made the poor choice or somebody made a poor choice that impacted you. Somebody hits you in a car. That's not God directing you to have a car accident. That's having a car accident. It just happens in this world. But then God can take you and use you from that. That no matter what happens, God can bring something good out of it. Because that's the God we serve. A God who is light and a God who is love. A God that is, Jesus represents the Urim and the Thummim. He is a very present help in time of need. You can call on Him and He's near. You can seek Him and find Him. He brings you light and leads you to perfection through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the torn veil. There is nothing between you and God except the man Jesus Christ, who is your intercessor. He is the high priest. So as we go into these dark days of the world's history, we are also going into the most glorious days where God can use you more than ever before. As the world gets darker, that's when your light needs to get brighter. As the world turns left, that's when you need to turn towards Jesus. We must seek his face and know that he is leading. If the high priest could go behind the veil and obtain an answer through the Urim and the Thummim, then how much greater is it that we can go to the Lord and obtain a living word that cannot fail? Don't be afraid to fail and to fall because you'll do it in Jesus' name. I just want to remind you that the reason I have us singing this at the end of every one of these sermons is I'm hoping that, that God prompts you that this would be your prayer, your song and your prayer, that you want to be a Christian, that you want to follow Jesus, that you want to be more holy. That's my desire, so that's why we keep singing it. So I pray it's your, your prayer. I'm going to leave you with the last two verses of the book of Jude, which is only one chapter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.